Hi, I'm John Henry, and this is Open for Business, a branded podcast from eBay and Gimlet Creative about building a business from the ground up. Today, we're going to hear from two small business owners who, on the face of it, could not be more different. I'm Andrea Gönner, and um, together with my husband Hans, I was the founder of Garnveld. I'm Bo Fischbach. I'm the founder and CEO of Zarli. Andrea lives in a tiny German town called Relingen. Bo's business is based near Kansas City, Kansas. Andrea is in the yarn business. Bo runs a tech company. Here's what they have in common. They've both watched your businesses fail, and they've survived to tell the stories. Now, both Andrea and Bo run small businesses that look very different from the first iteration of their companies. Bo's story is that of a young entrepreneur fueled by ambition, hype, and millions of dollars who watched his grand plans fall apart and now is rebuilding his company. Andrea's story is about salvaging what was left of a family business that thrived for more than 100 years until the world around them changed and they couldn't keep up. Failure looms large for every single business owner. Today on the show, how to survive it. Back in 2009, Andrea and her husband Hans found themselves knee-deep in yarn. Yes, we had about 20, 25 tons of different yarn. Wow. That's 48,000 pounds, if you're counting. The yarn was what remained of Hans's 150-year-old family business. It was a women's clothing company that catered to middle-aged women. So it was a very like conservative uh, knitting wear. And as the women changed their ideas of how or, or what they want to wear, uh, their, their taste, you know, became more modern. As those tastes became more modern and textile manufacturing evolved, the family business didn't keep up. Andrew's family kept their factories in Germany for years after many of their competitors moved abroad, where the production costs were lower. By the time they made that move, it was too late. Things were just done a certain way there. They prioritized that tradition above all else, and that made survival impossible. It was a family-run business for a very long time, nearly 150 years. So uh, structures are very, you know... Um, Rigid. Yes, exactly. And there was not, you know, if, if, uh, if you came up with new ideas, it was just like, oh, no, we did it always like that. Uh -huh. So let's continue. And uh, so it was very hard. That brings us back to 2009, when the company's inability to change caught up with them. And after 150 years in business, they had to shut down, which meant laying off hundreds of employees and closing multiple factories. And on top of all that, there was a leftover yarn to deal with. Andrea and Hans noticed that knitting had become a popular hobby in their town and figured they'd try to sell the yarn itself. So they listed it on eBay under the company name Garnwelt. It means a world of yarn. Much to their surprise, it started to sell. And, and it immediately, it immediately worked. So there, there was a demand for, for our products. In the beginning, we were really sitting there in front of the screen and say, oh, we have an order, order coming in. <laughs> this was eight years ago. At first, Andrea and Hans planned to simply liquidate their yarn supply and call it a day. But instead, their eBay store took off. 
Garnwell has expanded their business online and they've also opened a brick and mortar store in the same small town where they shuttered their family business. They now employ 20 people and make something like $3 million in revenue each year. Andrea has learned a lot about business by watching one fail. One key lesson she's learned, and the first lesson of today's show, in order to survive failure, you have to be nimble. You must be willing to try new things and implement new ideas. Relying too heavily on the way things have always been done can lead to the demise of your business. Which is why at Garnwell, innovation takes precedence over tradition every time. We are living in a very... uh fast world now <laughs> you wake up and things are different than they were today right uh, yesterday i mean <laughs> and so you have always to adjust andrea never imagined that she'd be running a small business selling yarn and making three million a year that's the thing about failure if you're determined to survive it you never know where it'll lead you for Bo fishback it led here Hello. Hey. How are you guys? Good. I'm John. What's up, man? I'm Bo. Hello. Hey, man. Today, Zarli is a small business made up of 13 employees located on a quiet residential street in Prairie Village, Kansas. This cozy, charming office is a far cry from Bo's initial dreams for the company. Here's an interview he did with Mashable in 2012, shortly after he launched Zarly. We're at South by Southwest with the CEO and founder of Zarly. Bo Fishback is here. Bo, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks very much. For those who don't know, tell us what Zarly is. It's the idea that you can say what you want and what you're willing to pay for it, and people around you will help get it. So you go to Zarly, you say what you want, it can be anything, goods, services, tickets to events, anything you can imagine. So this is a crowded space. What distinguishes Zarly from all the folks out there doing this? That we're really targeted on being a meta marketplace. So you can ask for anything, goods, services, access to experiences, um, and everyone from small businesses to individuals to large businesses around can provide it. And to be honest, like you can segment this thing up a lot of different ways. Um, I want, the, I want the massive meta marketplace, like not a niche that just kind of works and can build a $50 million company. We're trying to go and build a $50 billion company. That $50 billion company didn't work out. Bo started Zarly on a whim in 2011. That year, he went to Startup Weekend in LA, which is one of those pitch-your-business-idea-to-investors type of events. Bo was attending as a judge because, at the time, he worked at a nonprofit that funded entrepreneurial causes. However, he'd had this idea for a company for a while, and he's not a shy guy, so he decided, why not? He got on stage and pitched the idea at Startup Weekend. Here's a clip from that pitch. Basically, I wanted to be able to buy stuff that wasn't necessarily already for sale, and I wanted to be able to buy stuff near me when I wanted it. Um, you know, to give you an example, this weekend, I knew this Startup Weekend was gonna just rock it out. Um, I wanted an LA Startup Weekend t-shirt. I wanted 50 signatures from the people who were here on that t-shirt. And obviously, nobody was actively selling that. So uh, I posted to Zarly um, that that's what I was looking for. And two hours later, I had this shirt. <laughs> Bo's on stage here, wearing a backwards baseball cap and that T-shirt he bought on Zarly. He's in front of a screen emblazoned with the Zarly logo. The Z looks like a dollar sign, and the tagline is, where everything has a price. So we? We're a proximity-based, real-time, buyer-powered network. And buyer-powered is very important, and you'll see why. So what do you do with that, right? The possibilities are really endless. If this pitch is familiar, that's probably because it sounds a lot like TaskRabbit. But 
Zarli had way grander ambitions. It was supposed to be this marketplace for everything. And back in 2011, that on-demand marketplace for goods and services was still a new and exciting idea, especially to investors at Startup Weekend. I mean, on Sunday night, by the time I got back to Kansas City, actually, I mean, I had like drafted term sheets in my inbox from people who were there that night. And it was like, I, I don't, there's no company, guys. There wasn't a company, but there were lots of people offering to invest. People like Ashton Kutcher. Yep, the Ashton Kutcher. Famous Hollywood actor, ex-husband to Demi Moore, and current husband to Mila Kunis. He happened to be in the Startup Weekend audience, and he invested in Zarli's million-dollar seed round. The tech press swarmed around Zarli. This was a headline within a few months of Bo's pitch on the Startup Weekend stage. Zarli reels in $14 million. It's what every tech startup dreams of. Within six months, Bo had raised something like $15 million. And what did that feel like, like when you got, when you close on a $15 million round? You know, honestly, what it felt like was, great, let's go back to work. I don't have to talk to investors for a while. It felt like something that I could take off my plate. You were like, okay, just got all this money. I'm 90 days in, like, can we even pull this off? No, that came later. Um, at the time, I was like, there's not enough time in the day to do all the things we need to do, and um, everybody's gonna be rich. By this point, Zarli was valued at $50 million. A $50 million company without a functioning product. That utopian site where anyone could post a need for a good or a service anywhere in the country, and then multiple sellers would offer to fill that need, that was not working. There weren't enough sellers to fulfill buyers' requests on Zarli, and the ones that were there weren't reliable. But none of those problems mattered at the time. Everyone, Bo, his team, the investors, everyone was all in on the concept. So Zarli began to grow. We hired up a bunch of people, and some of them were kids right out of college, and some of them were people who'd been building stuff for a long time. Like, we were just, like, doubling down and, like, putting a war chest together. Zarli opened up a beautiful new office space in San Francisco and then another in New York City. And in both places, they paid to house employees in lavish apartments. All this excitement distracted from that fundamental flaw in Zarli's business model. People looking to buy stuff were posting all over the country. One woman wanted to buy a backpack in North Carolina. Some guy was looking for a home-cooked meal in San Francisco. But very few sellers were offering to fulfill those requests. This became painfully clear one day. Seven months into the founding of the company, a user logged on to Zarli to request the services of a rabbi. But it wasn't just any user. It was Ashton Kutcher. Here's Jeff Morris, an early Zarli employee. So we were getting like, really standard requests, like, hey, I need someone to deliver beer, I need someone to, to clean my house, whatever. And we were watching every request that would come in, and we saw Ashton made a request, and it was the first time Ashton had used Zarlin. He requested a rabbi to come to his house within 24 hours. If Zarli had been working properly, here's what would have happened. A rabbi would have responded to Ashton's request. Ideally, not just one rabbi, 
multiple rabbis would have responded to Ashton Kutcher and he would have had his pick. He would have been able to vet the rabbis and then select his favorite. But that's not what happened. What happened is that Ashton Kutcher's rabbi request sent the company into a panic because no rabbis were responding. And so the employees had to scramble. So then the next, like, 24 hours of my life were spent calling all my Jewish friends in L.A. and asking if they knew a rabbi who would go to a celebrity's house, and I couldn't say who it was. One of my friends who I went to film school with sent his wife, who had just become a rabbi, to Ashton's house, and she arrived, and um, it was Ashton and Debbie Moore and, and Ashton's kids. Obviously, Zarla's employees couldn't do this for every user, but they were starting to have to. At the time, it felt like this was just something they had to do until the platform started to work. But the longer that took, the more buyer requests were being handled by panicked Zarli staffers. This was not a sustainable business model, and the numbers were bearing that out. 9% of things that were getting posted were getting fulfilled. Wow. And I was like, that's not good at all. That's just not what we wanted to build, man. Like a gigantic noisy thing where you posted it and 9% of the time the thing you wanted happened. Like that's the very opposite of like the magic wand we wanted to create. It was like, it was like we had 3,000 requests and 9% of them got fulfilled. Shit. A year in, it was clear that Zarli needed to make a major fix to their product. But Bo and his core team were distracted by all the other stuff happening at the company. They were spending time and money planning big events and social media campaigns to get the word out. They even launched a college campus outreach program, all before they had a functioning product. That momentum was pushing them, but in the wrong direction. We kind of spun up, we hired a bunch of people and like whatever, it was 40 people running around the office and like trying to launch programs on college campuses and in cities all over the place and trying to do all that at once when you did not have like the real insight of is this marketplace working the way you want it to? In hindsight, what I would say is that uh, I didn't maybe realize like how, how empowered I was to slow that down at the time. This brings us to lesson number two. As a new business, anything that distracts you from perfecting your core offering, that product or service that got you to start a business in the first place, is just that, a distraction. As much as possible, shut out the noise. To break this cycle and turn things around, some senior staff members at Zarli decided to do an experiment. They needed to know who was using the product when there was no incentive to do so. So they removed all promotions from Zarli to see which customers stuck around. When we did that, the bottom kind of dropped out. This is Jamin Jance. He was one of Zarli's early employees on the product team. And there was, you know, not, it's not like an immediate panic, but it's like, oh, okay, well, that's great because that's where we really are. And that's terrifying because that's where we really are. And then you have to figure out what you're going to do from there. I think that's where the first signs of, of this first iteration of product of this reverse marketplace, um, it's not working. Roughly two years after Zarli launched a great fanfare, the company wasn't working. Coming up after the break, how Bo finally dealt with the dire state of the business and made some difficult decisions he'd been avoiding. 
I'm John Henry. This is Open for Business, and we're talking about surviving failure. By the summer of 2013, roughly two years after launch, it was clear that for Zarly to survive at all, something drastic had to change. Bo realized that the company would have to downsize almost as quickly as it grew. And because the thing they were spending the most money on was people, he had to lay off many of them. Sitting in front of a room of 25 people and being like, I fucked this one up, guys. Um, This sucked. I remember taking a picture of myself after everybody left and being like, I'm going to just keep this picture so I remember this day so this doesn't get recreated. I remember that. Um, and uh, it was a uh, moment of reckoning that, um, that, frankly, like I'd earned, I guess, is kind of what it comes down to, right? There's not, there's, It's not like an excuse-laden thing. It's like, well, hey, Bo, I got an idea. You should have hired all those people before you figured the company out, right? This is when Bo turned his attention to exactly that, figuring out the company. At this point, the Zarley office in New York was already closed. The one in San Francisco was on the way to being shuttered. Those lavish staff apartments were also phased out. Bo stopped all the extraneous stuff. The campus outreach programs, the social media campaigns, the live events, anything that didn't have to do with getting Zarley working simply had to go. Once Bo and his team were able to focus, they could see a path for Zarli. It wasn't the marketplace they'd envisioned, but it was serving a purpose for a specific group of people. Service providers like gardeners, carpenters, and house cleaners were using Zarli, and buyers were using their services. This little part of the product was working. It was like a light went off for Bo. And I remember actually a couple people on the team that were like, hey, it's not just services that are making this market tick, it's actually home services. Now, Zarli's focus is making that marketplace the best it can possibly be for those home service providers and the buyers seeking them out. This version of Zarli is exactly what Bo said he didn't want in that interview he gave right after he started the company. It's the niche marketplace, not the $50 billion everything for everyone dream. And this brings us to our third lesson. The version of your business that survives may not be the business you dreamed of. Prepare yourself to say goodbye to plan A and embrace plan B, even if it looks very different than your original vision. Bo has done just that. Without the distractions, he's been building the plan B version of Zarli as a small business first. He's doing that by getting the word out, not through huge expensive marketing pushes, but rather in a targeted and strategic way. How do you penetrate word of mouth, right? So whether it's influencers, whatever, mommy bloggers, you can do all kinds of stuff if you're in the world of home services, right? So like we did all those things. Uh, One of them that we had long thought was probably really high effort, but could be really high impact, where existing word of mouth is super duper concentrated was actually realtors. Zarly has grown their user base by partnering with real estate agencies. And as a result, their product is getting in front of those who really need it. People buying and selling homes. The company is focused. And that has influenced the way that Bo thinks about hiring. Specifically, he's learned that more employees does not necessarily mean more productivity. The 13 people who work at Zarly today are all there for a purpose, doing what they're good at. I think especially in small companies, like everybody rowing in the same direction and making sure that everybody is really dialed in on their area of core competence. Across my whole team, 
from the time we had three people to 40 people, when things got askew, is when you were asking people to do things they weren't good at. And having to learn everything on the job at a startup is too expensive. Like, it's just too expensive. So let the people who are good at writing write. And if you don't need somebody who's good at writing, don't hire them. Like, let the people who are good at designing design. And, you know, like, I'm a very big believer in um, surrounding yourself with, like, really good core competencies and knowing your own. One of those employees is Jamin Jantz. He's been with Zarly since the beginning. He's moved with his wife and kids across the country twice to stay at the company. Jamin says he knows there will continue to be ups and downs, but he still believes in the vision. I came in with zero experience in, in startups and not having any idea about what I was getting myself into. Things are hard and... and <laughs> And, and some days you feel like you're gonna, you're at the top of the world, and other days they're like, we are, there's no way we're gonna win. We are going to fail. And this is a disaster, and why did I ever do this? And sometimes that happens on the same day. <laughs> the doubts that are honestly always at the back of my mind. And I think if someone is honest, anybody who's in a startup, the, one of the doubts is, am I just, am I on the deck of the Titanic? You know, the ship is sinking, nothing's going to stop that. And am I just like rearranging deck chairs? Because you never really know if your startup is successful until it's successful. It's, it's very rare, very, very rare where you'll You'll just see it and, you know, like absolutely know 100% that this thing is a rocket ship taking off. If any company seemed like it was going to be that rocket ship taking off, it was Zarly. But it didn't turn out that way. After six years of ups and downs, million dollar fundraising rounds and layoffs, Bo has learned our fourth lesson. When you're building a company, there's no shortcut to success. Building a successful business takes time. There's lots of attention on those rocket ships, but once that attention fades, that's usually when the hard work begins. Bo still believes in the $50 billion future. He just thinks it's gonna take him a lot longer to get there. This is actually a company that like you build for a lifetime if you're gonna get it right. Um, and so then the question is, hey, who's up for that and who's not? Um, that's why I still work here, because this is the only job I've ever had that, like, I would love to have this job in 20 years. He also believes this, and this rang true from my own experience as an entrepreneur. One surefire way to survive failure is just to keep showing up no matter what. The two reasons startups fail, right? They run out of money and the founder quits. If one of those two things doesn't happen, it's still a company. And I think there are a lot of really great companies that, like, they grind their way to success. We will be one of them. To recap today's lessons, lesson number one, be nimble. In order to survive failure, you have to be nimble, willing to try new things and implement new ideas. Relying too heavily on tradition and the way things have always been done can contribute to the demise of your business. Lesson number two, shut out the noise. Anything that distracts you from your core business, that product or service that got you to start your company in the first place, is just that, a distraction. Lesson number three, embrace plan B. The version of your business that survives may not be the business you dreamed of. 
Prepare yourself to say goodbye to plan A and embrace plan B. Finally, lesson number four, there's no shortcut to success. Building a successful business takes time. There's lots of attention on those rocket ships, but once that attention fades, that's usually when the hard work begins. learn more about us, check out ebay.com slash open for business. On the next episode of Open for Business, recent data suggests entrepreneurship is increasingly clustered in a handful of major cities. We'll hear from entrepreneurs outside those hubs about how they've learned to make the most of wherever they are. So my first storefront was actually located in my bedroom, believe it or not. Wow, like literally people were walking in there. Because it's a small community, if you lived in New York City and you put up signs, hey, I've got suits, come on, see me in my bedroom and try them on, someone would probably call the cops on you. That's next week on Open for Business. Open for Business is a co-production of eBay and Gimlet Creative. Our theme song is by Wolfpack. We're produced by Caitlin Boguki, Francis Harlow, Abby Ruzica, Nicole Wong, RMW, and Julia Botero. Zach Schmidt is our engineer. Creative direction by Nazanin Rafsanjani. Production assistance from Grant Irving. Special thanks to Daniel Pearson, Mariah Zaytun, and Tom Kolbeck. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Open for Business on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps people discover our show. I'm John Henry. This is Open for Business. Thanks for listening.